Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Well, it's December the 4th. One week ago today was Thanksgiving, and we were off. Or is it December the 5th? It's December the 5th. One week ago today was Thanksgiving. Right? It's already the 5th of December. Wow. You know, one minute you're in Thanksgiving and it's November, and the next minute you're almost at Christmas. It just So uh, we had the week off, but thank you for coming back. We're going to finish the first chapter of Thessalonians today, uh, of the first chapter of the first letter. If you have a prayer card with you, let's pray before we study. Thanks for coming, and let's begin with our prayer before the study of Scripture. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, we left off two weeks ago with the thought uh, in verse 7. Uh, actually, it was verse 6. That closing thought of verse 6, we left off how how could the apostle talk about being uh, receiving much affliction, but yet being inspired with joy? Those two things seem to be uh, conflicting to us. I mean, we don't joy in our afflictions by nature. Okay, Afflictions are hard times. Uh, things that press in upon us. He says in verse 6, we'll just read that to remind you. And he's talking to the group there, the church at first at the Thessalonia, Thessalonica. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we talked last time about what it meant to imitate, and that's kind of where we closed off. The study, but I, I want to take up this idea of of having receiving the word. Okay, what does that mean to receive the word? When Paul says to them, "You received the word with much affliction," 
What do you think he's saying to them? You're hearing it. You're receiving it. You're you're hearing it. I mean, they were there to well, to preach to them, yes, and to share the word. Receiving but, it into their hearts. They're receiving it into their hearts with much affliction. What's what's happening around them? Persecution. Persecution. Yes, they are being persecuted. Remember, everywhere that Paul went, they were. People were just riling up the crowd around him and just really trying to uh, trying to stop this movement of God. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, you see that persecution today over in that same area mm-hmm. with the yeah. people that have converted to Christianity, particularly the Muslims. That just... There's in hostile areas where the, the receiving of the word, or converting, in other words, being becoming people of faith, these were some Jewish, some Greek, some Gentiles, if you will, that are receiving Christ. They're receiving the word of God, but they're doing it with much affliction. And Paul's commenting, you did this with much joy also. Where's the joy come from? How do you joy when people are persecuting you? It comes from the Lord. Yeah, and that's why he says right here, Inspired by the Holy Spirit. If he hadn't put that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that whole sentence wouldn't make sense. There's just no way in our humanity that we can receive the good news of Jesus Christ while people are terrorizing us and persecuting us and, as the Sermon on the Mount says, saying all kinds of things about you on account of me, Jesus says. But, but by the Holy Spirit, we can receive it with joy. So I think it's the hallmark. This is one of the things that this letter points out to us. It's the hallmark of a Christian believer to be a person inspired by joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit to a life of joy, no matter what the circumstances are. That's the key. Can we say that we live out our faith with joy, no matter what the circumstances are? And this is going to be key to this letter Uh, of Paul to the Thessalonians, because as we're about to notice in this next verse, the world was watching. The world was watching. Let's let's read 8 through 10 again. I'm 7 through 10. He says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living God and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So in verse 7, we see that the Apostle Paul is commending them for their faith and he's even saying, you know what? We don't even need to say anything about you guys because, why? Their life is showing. The whole world's talking about their lives. Here's this little group in Greece, in Macedonia, and it's a little conversion group here of new Christians, and the whole world's talking about Paul literally says the whole world is talking about them. He says it's gone, word has gone forth everywhere about your faith. That's pretty remarkable. I wonder if we can even wrap our minds around that because we're living 2,000 years later in a, in a, in a culture that, now for most of us that grew up in it, it's rapidly becoming not a Christian culture. 
But for much of our earlier lives, it was a pretty much a Christian culture around here. And, and so it seemed like, it has seemed to me that you could live your life as a Christian in America and not look or be all that much different than everyone around you. And there wasn't this stark contrast. Somehow there's a really stark contrast in what these people are living through. Because their faith is causing everyone to talk. And what is it about their faith? What, is, what does Paul say they're doing with their faith that is causing so much talk? Did you catch what he says they're doing? They turned from idols. That's right. He says, and, and so I want to I kind of try and get that into our head here. So it's, he, he said that they were, uh, in verse 9 he says, for the report concerning us, uh, for they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. So there's two things there in verse 9 he notes, that there was they themselves, who's the they? The they is the, the world that's talking. Okay, the, the people that are talking wherever he goes about the Thessalonians. And he says, they're reporting what an incredible uh, welcome we had among you and how you all turned from idols. So this union of that, that Paul, this, this union of Paul and Timothy and Silas with these beloved brethren and people there in, in uh, Thessalon- Thessalonica, they... That, that was a welcome time. It was a beautiful birth of a church that caused great talk all around, not only, he says, in Macedonia and Achaia, but all over. What an amazing thing that was. And the thing that really caught everybody's attention is that they could turn from their idols. Now, of course, we can look back to, hi, good morning. Good morning, Faye, good to see you. If you look back at we, we can look back, of course, to the Ten Commandments, and what's one of the big commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No idols, in other words. Okay. All around the world, people were idol worshippers. People were worshipping. One of the interesting things about ancient cultures, in ancient times, there were no atheists. Do you realize that? In ancient times, there were no atheists. Everybody had a God. It's hard for me to realize that people can worship something they made. Yeah, a piece of wood or something. And so, so try and think about that. What would... That stands there just like it always did. <laughs> yeah. What does it say about their need to worship that they Desperate. would go to that extent? Desperate. Desperate. The human soul was created. I think there was a great philosopher uh, named Pascal who said... There is a God-shaped void inside every human soul. And only God can fill it. And so what humans are trying to do is continually find a God that fits that void. And for all of time, they have tried to find it in the sun or the moon or the stars or the trees or the rocks or, or building some kind. You think of the Hindus, how many gods yeah. they have. Oh my, yeah. Look at the Hindu, the Hindu form of worship had multitudes of gods. And so in all of those forms, God said that's, that's what we would call pagan worship because there is only one true God. 
And so when, and that's the gospel message. Jesus Christ is God, the true God. And notice how Paul says it right here. Look at what he says in verse, look at what he says in, in verse, uh, at the end of that very verse, nine, that you turn from, uh, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Very important. He put not only just living, but true. There's only but one true God. That's hard for them too because they can't see. That's right. So this God that, of course, we know, uh, God began His covenant with humanity through Abraham. This God that no one could see at that time, a God with no name. But now, in the fullness of time, what is the gospel message? The gospel message is there. This true God actually took on a human form, so He could be seen. We touched him. We felt him. We walked with him. This is, this is Paul, remember, as an eyewitness. He wasn't with the twelve during the three years of his travel, but he had that encounter on the road to Damascus that made him an eyewitness of Jesus. So the, one of the things about the apostolic witness was that they were, they were the eyewitnesses. They were the apostles that really were sent by Jesus himself. So the first layer of ministry is by people who were there. They touched him, they knew him, they walked with him, and they talked with him. And they know he's the true God. So when they go to a place like Macedonia or wherever in the world and take the gospel, the message is, you don't need to serve this rock or that tree or whatever. There is a true God, and he came to live among us, and his name was Jesus. And he was born, and they begin to tell the gospel story, born as a babe in a manger. And he was raised, and then he lived, and he ministered, and he was crucified, and he was dead. And, and his, by his death, we're reconciled to God. Our sins are forgiven, not just every year, but once and for all. And then he rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he ascended back to heaven and sent his spirit to live within us. You know, they thought one of the things about pagans is they believed the spirit of God inhabited the idol. So I, you mentioned Hindus, for instance, Kent. You know, the Hindus, you, you, you see these little golden statues and different types of statues. They really, truly believe that the spirit of their God is inside that statue. So they will literally worship that statue. Um, that's a foreign thought to Christianity. Totally foreign. You know, back then, mm -hmm. they didn't have TVs and internet and all that kind of stuff that tells us about God and Jesus right. and so on. Right. So it'd be hard for them to get that info out all over. Yeah, the gospel spread one mouth at a time. One mouth at a time. Yes, Wes? What about the Mary statues that some Catholics have? Good question. I'm glad you brought that up. Good question. You brought that up. I, having been Catholic myself in my young years, I can tell you that I've never met a Catholic who worshipped that statue of Mary or Saint Joseph or whoever, ever. That statue is simply a representation. Okay, they don't worship it. Now, to her spirit, but not to the statue. You see. So this is a great thing to explore because I, I think we have to ask ourselves, what does 
what does it mean for us to turn from our idols? Okay, Because it's a very common myth among Protestants that Catholics worship idols. <laughs> it's not true. They don't worship idols at all. That statue, and in the, in the more ancient churches beyond, the statues came in kind of the Middle Ages, okay? Uh, the medieval times. Before that, it was paintings and pictures, and we know them as maybe icons, which is actually the Greek word for image, icon. Yes, you well, have a thought. the golden calf? Now, the golden calf was definitely yeah, an idol. That was Jews. That was that Jews. Was Jewish people. That was the Jewish people showing their weakness, creating a, an idol like they would have had in Egypt. See, the Egyptians had idols like that. And here they were in the desert. They had left Egypt. And they were, tr- they were frustrated that Moses wasn't coming back off the mountain. There were probably some naysayers trying to say, hey, your God's not real. Your God's not coming. Let's go back to Egypt and let's worship this statue and so that, that was definitely an, an idol worship. Now, what's the difference between that and praying before a statue in a church or a picture or something? Or, or let's just let's put it this way. In, in this church, in the sanctuary, okay, when there were presentations called living pictures and you put Jesus on a cross... A, a physical human being, you put him up there to act a part and to and to uh, bleed and to be stabbed and to and, and people are in in that sense witnessing something. What was the purpose of bringing that visible that visible instead of just standing up there and telling the story? Why why did, why go through all that trouble? Because the power of the vision, the power of the vision. Okay, you're actually seeing it. That's right. So if we could go back, if we could go back to the Old Testament temple, we can go all the way back to the Old Testament tabernacle, what would we find in the Old Testament tabernacle? We would find golden, overlaid carvings of angels. We would find images. God designed his tabernacle, which later became a physical temple, with all kinds of images. So it wasn't that God, God, I liked to, it was the Baptist preacher of all people, famous Baptist preacher, Adrian Rogers. Anybody remember him? He had a radio program for many, many years, a great preacher. He said, God's second amendment is against idolatry, not art. <laughs> I love that phrase. It's against idolatry, not art. Okay. So if, if all around us, we're, we're visually stimulated people, and God's given us creation for beauty. I I think he gave us a temple worship for beauty. In that temple worship, they had uh, candles, they had incense. All of these things were symbolic that actually represented and drew the object of our prayers being risen or raising up to God in heaven, okay? Or connecting, even beyond that, connecting with the prayers already in heaven. See, then you jump, you flip forward in the scripture, you go from that Old Testament temple where the priests are in there lighting bowls full of incense and candles and, and uh, that aroma, and you go all the way to the book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation, you start reading in chapters 4 and 5 about 
being in the throne room of God in heaven, and you start seeing that there are all these white-robed saints falling down with golden bowls full of incense, which it says are the prayers of the saints. What's happening here? You see, that's at the end of the Bible, and go back to the beginning of the Bible, you're seeing a connection. God's people... God's people, starting with the Jews, have always worshipped in ways that were very full and meaningful. Not idolatry. Not idolatry to have a statue or something like that. Because what what keeps that statue from being an idol? I think this is real important for us today. What keeps the statue of... I have in my office at home now, uh, I have a... uh, a, a giant, it's real, I say giant, it's about this big, three feet long, big ornate crucifix that was given to me when I was like 16 years old by a, a lady in the Catholic Church. And it's beautiful, it's very artistic, gorgeous. I mean, it just it has a very meaningful, and it's hanging on my wall. I also have a little uh, statue about this tall of St. Francis of Assisi. That was a gift from somebody meaningful. And in all each of these, what is it? What is it keeps those from being idols? You have to realize they're just a representation. That's right. See, here's the key right here. Idol is always a matter of the heart. What do you give your heart to? You put your heart in that hope in that statue, that statue or that picture or whatever. No, not at all. But we can also understand that they're given by God's ordaining in the Old Testament. These kind of things, visual stimulation, are given as an aid to our worship. Why did God do it? Because he knew it would help them worship. It would help them become more, uh, shall I say, sacred. Now, the Protestant Reformation... Some of the people in the Protestant Reformation, there was a big division here. Some of them kept things like statues, icons, and uh, stained glass windows. How is a stained glass window with a picture of the Good Shepherd any different than a... You see what I'm saying? But And then the other churches threw them out completely. Not only threw them out, guess what they did? Some of the radical reformers in the Protestant Reformation went into the village and tore down the statues, tore down the pictures off the wall, took them out into the city square, and they burned them. That's horrible. Guys, that's horrible. You know? That, that's not... They're, they're, you, can, you can't find anything biblical about that. So, I think it's important for us to remember that God created us as visual people as people with a need to surround why do we decorate our homes why do we do it why is this room decorated for christmas because somehow it's supposed to help adjust our mood somehow it's supposed to help make us think about christmas just like those stained glass windows do and those statues do and those icons do it's beautiful reminders of the faith that we want to plug ourselves into spiritually okay sacred that window you worship exactly right it's exactly right our worship is always a matter of the heart. Always a matter of the heart. Now, he's telling them that they left their idols. We've heard, the world's talking about how you left your idols. 
Well, that was radical because nobody else in the world left their idols except Christians. Okay? Nobody else did. Every religion, I told you earlier, no, there were no such things as atheists in the ancient world. Where does atheism come from? As best we can trace it, it's a phenomena that was never there in the ancient world. And as best we can trace it, philosophy and the study of these kind of things, as best we can trace it, nobody can point. It's not like one person started an atheistic movement. But let me tell you where I think it best has traced to. And it's it's kind of troubling. (laughs) It traces itself back to the roots of Western Christianity in the Dark Ages. And that is because what happened in the Dark Ages in, in Europe in Western Christianity, was a, a, a side trip, if you will. It, wasn't, it began to veer away from the true vision of God. And the true vision of God as light and love and holy. And somehow, in Western thought, God began to be, the, the accent began to be put on him as the just judge the you you saw things he was more aloof from his creation eventually over time it even developed into things like deism where there were whole groups of people that were well yeah there's a god but he doesn't care about us at all he doesn't have anything to do with our world anymore you know that sort of this is all all these kind of things are foreign to the original ancient christian thought that came out of the east okay but they sure developed in the mind of Western civilization. And this idea that, that God is someone we have to appease, that God is someone we have to please or he doesn't love us. Those are horrible thoughts. But yet they're very real. And their roots, I think, they're the roots, I think, that led to atheism. Because people would rather reject a God they that is mean and that judges them in a, such a harsh way that they could never please. And so they begin to hate that God. And that's what atheism is, the hating of God right, right, right. to the point that they say there is no God. Well, how do you hate something you don't really believe in? Right. Yeah. So, Wes, go ahead. I, Thought? I, I was just thinking. Oh, okay. That's okay. Yeah. You can think out loud in here. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess what I, want, what I want to ask us this morning is what would it look like for us to turn from our idols? And to make such an impact on the world around us that people would say, wow, that church is amazing. Those people are amazing. What is it? We need that. I want that. You see, that's what Christianity is supposed to be about. Because we have our idols. Because we have our idols. So that's, you're exactly right. So what does it look like for us to turn from our idols? What could it look like for us to turn from our idols? That's a difficult conversation to have. And it has nothing to do with the, the building of the church. You see, because idols are things we form inside. What? My grandpa took off his tie because he was so proud of his many, many ties. How about that? There, that's a great example. For instance, that's a good example, Dorothy. Let's say that a church group was so proud of their neckties... Everybody had to wear a tie. If you were a man, you had to wear a tie. And you better not come to church without a tie, or boy, you wouldn't be welcome. Any everybody? Has this story ever played out before? Sure it has. Sure it has. 
what did they do? They made an idol out of that tie. Mm-hmm. You see? Exactly. It's interesting that you brought that up. But he got a little collar. He was as proud as <laughs> so, <laughs> so what does it say about our what does it say about our need to have something we're proud of? <laughs> you know? Pride goeth before a fall, that's what scripture says. And and so we look at things like this in this this last of this first chapter. Remember, this this chapter is all about evangelism. It's about how the gospel was spread by this beautiful example of this new planted church in Macedonia called the Thessalonians. And it's a beautiful example. And and, and the gospel just began to spread because it was authentic. It was a turning away from sin. It was a turning away from idols. It was a turn. It was they received the word, and it didn't matter if they were persecuted. They still turned away. They still because what we're happening here is what we've noticed the last couple of weeks when we've been studying this first chapter. We've noticed that Paul is intentionally bringing up things that he's been accused. He's having to defend himself. He's intentionally bringing up things that he's been accused of. We're going to see that more in chapter two. Well, did the Greeks? They had a lot of gods, didn't they? The Greeks they had lots of gods, yes. So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. this is the culture. That this they, is the culture, they that's were right. In. And for them to reject that was huge. Which what they did before <clears throat> they accepted Christ. Right, that's right. Before they accepted Christ. You know, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a powerful example. And, and that's why I made the comment earlier about our culture. It just seems like we're just, oh, everybody's Christian. I mean, I literally grew up in the 1960s, thinking everybody was Christian. You know? I, I just did. It was small-town America and Midwest, and I just thought everybody went to church, everybody was Christian, and it didn't matter. I mean, you know, one form or another, we were just born that way because it's a Christian culture. Well, boy, was I wrong. A lot of them were back then. Perhaps a lot of them were, but boy, was I wrong. Not, they may not have gone to church, but they, a lot of more Christians than were there not today. And so, that, and so there lies the rub. It's not that we need to go back to the way things were in the 60s, because quite frankly, that wasn't working. That's one of the reasons why so many today reject it, because what we saw in the 60s wasn't necessarily always authentic. Okay? Maybe, and if it was for you, then you feel it, and you wish you could go back to it, but that doesn't mean it was authentic. Yeah? I was going to say, the media isn't helping either, because if you look at stuff from the 50s and the 60s, you, know, you watch your TV shows, and it was... Mm-hmm. Christianity was pretty much ingrained into that. They were Christian families. They were, right. You know, all that stuff. And you look right. at TV today, and I think I mentioned this in another class, you know, there's a show called Lucifer now. Yeah, yeah, and of all things. They're yeah. making him look like a good guy. Yeah. And wow. all these TV shows and everything that's being shown to everybody is all, like, against God. Yeah, it's anything so goes today. It's turned over from what it used to be. It's true. And so that's what I mean. We're rapidly becoming a, a culture that is hostile to to Christian thought. We really are. So our lives, the balance of our lives, and the lives of our children's and the next generation may look a lot different, may look a lot scary, may look more afflicted, like he said. And so the question is, are are we living out a Christian faith that is so authentic, that is so filled with joy by the Holy Spirit, even though... We're afflicted that it'll that it'll translate to the next generation. That's our goal, okay? Because if we don't, 
recover it. And I, I got to tell you, I'm not all doom and gloom here this morning. I really do believe it's happening. I believe there is an authentic movement of the Holy Spirit happening. It's called revival, okay? It's called spiritual renewal. And it doesn't necessarily look like revival did 50 years ago, okay? Now it maybe looks more like uh, Methodists and Baptists and non-denominational and all of, and even Catholics working together in ministry for the kingdom. It looks a lot less denominational than it did 50 years ago. It's more of a coming together, yeah. Because let me tell you, 50 years ago or when I was a kid, it, it, the world, the nomination walls were high. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had God in high. a box. We had God in a box, all right, and we really believed our denomination was it, mm-hmm. or they believed theirs was it. You know, that couldn't be more wrong. And and there's some really radical groups like the Jehovah's Witness who really believe they're it. So so this idea, I believe we're, we're witnessing, we're living through something. I believe we're witnessing. I see it in my ministry. I work and I, I, I meet with other churches, and I have for years now met with other pastors and other denominations, and I see a cooperation and a spirit that I haven't seen in my lifetime. That's a good thing, everybody. That's a good thing. So I want to give you a thought here. Um, you know, back, This didn't happen overnight, okay? Back in the 70s, there was a big conference called the Lausanne Conference. Anybody remember that name? The Lausanne Movement. It was uh, Lausanne is a place in Switzerland, but the, the the big conference they had uh, it wasn't held in Switzerland, but that's named after that. The evangelical world got together, evangelical denominations got together, and they listed a manifesto of things that that they would stand for, and and it that was a kind of a beginning of bringing down some walls. For the sake of the gospel, the Lusan study the Lusan movement. It's fascinating. There is a, there there's a comment here by John R. W. Stott. Now I've told you I'm using some of John R. W. Stott's commentaries as we study this book. John R. W. Stott was a clergyman in the Church of England. Okay, he passed away now uh, in the last several years, sometime. But he was a contemporary, the 20th and on into the 21st century. Incredible theologian of the Church of England. So was John Wesley from the Church of England. A lot of great people have come out of the Church of England. That that uh, he he was at that Lausanne conference. He was one of the main movers of it. And you don't even think of the Church of England as evangelical, do you? <laughs> I mean, the Church of England is the Episcopal Church in America. You know, that's the movement that that Anglican Communion, if you will. But there are pockets of the Anglican Communion that have always been very evangelical. Very much alive in the spirit, um, so much so that even in the last, this last decade, uh, the decade previous to this one, um, there were many branches that had to split out of the Anglican Communion because of its liberal leanings and things that they wanted to to move away. But anyway, uh, he he made a comment. John Stott did. He said, when we look back over Chapter One, we think of these two things. Like the church in Thessalonia, the church of today must be this. It must, the church that, he says it, I'll read it from him. The church which receives the gospel must pass it on. The church that receives the 
the gospel must pass it on. Okay, that's what the Thessalonians, I mean, they're not, they're not even six months old. This church is not even six months old at the time Paul writes this letter. And it's already being talked about all over the country. How's that happen? <laughs> in an age where there's no newspapers, no television, no radio. How does that happen? That's a whole lot of word to mouth. Okay? It can be done. Think what could happen in our age if we got turned around, huh? <laughs> so, number one, he says we can learn from the Thessalonians, the church that receives the gospel must pass it on. Not just sit there and build a wall around themselves and say, we got, boy, we found it. We've got it all. Okay, number two, he says, the church which passes on the gospel must embody it. Yes. You get that? Must embody it. I love that word, embody it. It must be, it must be just germane to who they are. They, they live it out. They don't just believe it. Okay, what, what happens when, when a church decides to do evangelism and just take a message out, even if it's a great message like the gospel, but it's not believable because it's not being lived out by the messenger and or the body that's sending that messenger, who's going to believe it? You know, who wants... You know, that, and this is one of the problems we have in our, in our Christian circles is because in our, in our world, there are way too many churches, communities, church communities that look just like the world. And, and yes, I realize that, that we should look like the world in terms of uh, ethnic makeup. I'm not talking about that. Yes, we should look like the world. We should be multicultural. We should be... Uh, Filled with people with all kinds of hang-ups, hurts, and habits. That's not the problem. What I'm saying is they're, they're like the world in that they just don't ever get past it. And they don't ever find that inspiration of the Holy Spirit to <coughs> conquer their sins. And the call to holiness, that's why the call to holiness is everything. We're not called to just come to faith in Jesus and then sit around and wallow in our sins because he's forgiven us. It's okay to keep our sins because he's forgiven us. You know, we're good to go. That's not the call. That's not the call to holiness. That's not the gospel. The call to holiness is to rise above our sins and to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live a life that's transformed by the gospel. So, uh, last thought. He says here, uh, this is actually from the, the conference. The, it was called the Manila Manifesto. They had a Manila conference in this Lusanne movement back in the, I think this was in the 80s. And this is a quote from it. No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we are talking about. It is not enough to receive the gospel and pass it on. We must embody it in our own common life of faith, love, joy, peace, righteousness, and hope. That is well said. Very well said. And so at the end of this chapter, Paul is commending them in verses uh, 7, 8, and 9 for this incredible report he's hearing around the world. Um, and then he turns to say to them, for you're serving the living true God and to wait for his son. Verse 10 is so fascinating. He said, this is the report. They've not only heard that they're They've turned from their idols to the true living God, but also they've heard that they're waiting. It says, but you also have to wait for his son from heaven, 
when he talks about the true living God, he talks about Jesus as that true living God's son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. There's the gospel being preached right there. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this people, these people that we know as the Thessalonian church, they're living in community, forsaking their idols, being transformed by the grace of God, loving one another, loving others, even though they're being persecuted all around them. And what's helping them do that is the fact that they're waiting on something. They know that their reward is not here in this life. They're waiting on what? They're waiting on heaven. They're waiting on the Son to come from heaven. He talks about Jesus who delivers us. Now, there's a, I don't have my board up here, so I can't write it down. I guess the board got moved away. But there's a Greek word here, ruomai, ruomai. Okay, you spell R-H-U-O-M-A-I, ruomai, ruomai. And this is the word that Paul uses here for Jesus as our deliverer. When he says, for Jesus who delivers us, who rumaoi, from the wrath to come. That's the same exact word Jesus uses in, the, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. And when we go to that Greek word and we look at it, we see that, that it, 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 it means this complete and full delivery. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the wrath. And in this case, he says, from the wrath to come. <coughs> there was this understanding. And there's the, here's the tension that we need to learn to live in. How do we understand that God has a wrath? Okay, because it's biblical. It's there. Talks about it everywhere. He's even saying, he's admitting right here, there's a wrath going to come. Okay, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's what scripture teaches. How do we understand that wrath of God as something that emanates from a holy, loving Father? Those two things are held at tension, aren't they? Okay? Um, My Father, God rest his soul, had a way of bringing down the wrath. Okay? And it was about 38 inches long and made out of leather. Okay? With a brass buckle at the end of it. And he could whip that belt off and you felt the wrath. Not very many times, but there were a few. And I'm sure I deserved it. In fact, I know I deserved it. (laughs) But the point is, I had to hold that intention with this supposed to be my loving father. It's supposed to be my loving father. You know, how do you, what, what is that? So, so we can't look at our earthly fathers. Okay, we cannot look at our earthly fathers to try and get this, figure this tension out. So let's look at God. In the remaining time we have left this morning, I want us to, to, to process this thought of the wrath. What is the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God is against evil, not against people. Right. He loves people, all I, people. I love that thought. Yeah. It's against the evil, the unrighteousness, not against people. I love that thought. It's a beautiful way to say it. So when we think about hell, okay, a literal place that Jesus talked about called uh, 
he, he, wrote, he talked about it in images like it was a literal place because he used the word Gehenna. And Gehenna, in their minds, they knew where Gehenna was. It was a literal place where there was a, it was a valley outside of Jerusalem <coughs> that, that not only was a, a burning trash heap and a smoldering place where the fire never went out, it had an ancient history that everybody knew about where evil was done, and even babies had been sacrificed. I mean, it was a Gehenna was a horrible name and place. Okay, so when Jesus Himself even says things, fear don't fear don't fear man who can kill you, but fear God who can send your soul to hell. How, how, how do we hear that as a loving Father? Well, I think it's very important for us to understand this thought that God loves every person. Even, as one old hymn always said, the vilest offender. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. You remember that hymn? I don't even know the name of the hymn. It's just that that line stuck in my mind. You know what I'm saying? That's... Only pure love can do that. You see, here, here, here's something I think we don't do a good enough job at teaching about God. And we haven't done enough good teaching about God, or not that many people would hate God. There wouldn't be so many atheists in the world. If they just knew the true God, and the true God is love, and he's, he's light, and he's joy, and he's peace, and he's holy. And the reason he, there is a wrath is because ultimately... Evil must be punished. Ultimately, evil must be punished. If it's not punished, then he wasn't really holy. So his punishment is actually his love. Boy, there's an oxymoronic thought. His punishment is actually his love. Joan? Um, I was thinking about when I was early years of my life. We went to a church that taught the word um, that they never I didn't ever feel like Jesus was a personal thing Um, we never had altar calls that I remember we never I mean it was just I wonder how many churches were like that it was kind of an abstract thing Yeah. well actually that was my experience too Joan in in my earliest of days there was a church that was not never I didn't even know what an altar call was there was no invitation to personal communion, if you will. I know that I accepted Christ in that church because mm-hmm. I remember the pastor brought it up during a worship service when I was in high school. Yeah. And But we just stayed in our seats. We didn't make any declaration or, you know. Sure. And we didn't talk all that much about Jesus outside mm-hmm. the church. And mm-hmm. it was just... You know, it's yeah. hard for me to make that change. Yeah. When you really became evangelical in your spirit. Mm-hmm. To yeah. So here's here it's a, it's a true dichotomy of thought. It really is that God could be love and wrath at the same time, and it is it is it is holiness. You see, here's the thing. If we never discipline our child in some way, shape, or form, and I'm not here to teach about 
capital punishment anymore. Not capital, corporal punishment. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not here to teach about either. <laughs> but if, if we never punish our child in some way, shape, or form, do we really love them? We have a love that's warped because it's not got their best interest at heart. You see? So we become what is psychologists call an enabler. Okay? We just can't punish them, so we, we, we enable their disobedience. And when this happens, we're not being holy. We're not being loving. And it's the same with God. God has to ultimately punish sin, allow sin its ultimate punishment, or he's not holy and he's not loving. So let's talk about what that ultimate punishment is. I think it's very important. I think most, boy, I don't have time to get into that. It's, it'd take a whole class. Someday we're going to teach a class on hell. Okay? Y'all want to take a class on hell? <laughs> okay, let's teach a class on heaven and hell. How about that? <laughs> Sounds better if we teach on heaven and hell. <laughs> we need to balance them out. But, but here's, what I want, here's what I want you to hear just in the few minutes we do have. Okay? is that hell is not a place where God sends you because he's mad at you because you didn't obey him and you rejected him, so you're out of here. That's not hell. In fact, the longer I live, the more I study, the more I learn, I really believe hell is in the presence of God. I believe hell is in the presence of God. I believe, I believe for those who do, who are finally impenitent. I know, I, I know this is a struggling thought because you're looking at me like, oh, where are you going with this, Brad? I, follow me, stay with me, okay? And then we'll unpack it more in that class. If God is creator of all things, He is before all things. There's no place where God isn't. There could not be a place where God isn't. But scripture teaches us there's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? There's a pit for the devil and his angels, if you will. Now, if God is everywhere, that place is still somewhere in God's presence. Okay? Now, I can even draw you in. Go ahead. Jump in. It's okay. Okay. There you go. Okay, this is the point. This is the point. Hell, I really believe heaven and hell, I mean, we've we got to stop thinking about literal places, okay? Everything in, everything in the book of Revelation, it talks about streets of gold and walls and gates and all that. You know what, guys? We don't need to take that absolutely literally. It might be that, but it might not be. It, but what I think those are trying to tell us is it's, it's going to be greater than anything our human mind could imagine. Right. You see what I'm saying? And right now, those are the most things we, best things we can imagine. The holy city of God, paved with streets of gold, and all those other jewels and things. I mean, but, but don't think of it as a, as a specific time and a place because it's outside of time and space, okay? In fact, actually, when you begin to look at it, I think Scripture teaches it's here. This world will be recreated. Jesus says, I'm recreating all things, and the new heaven and the new earth come down, okay? So it's not that we're really going anywhere, Okay? 
It's going to we're going to re-inhabit a new earth and a new heaven that the old one has passed away. But in that, I really believe hell and heaven are a common experience. But for some, it will be joy everlasting and bliss. And for some, it will be eternal punishment. Because if you lived your whole life and you hated God and you were evil and you didn't want anything to do with God, what would be a greater punishment than having to be forced to be near his love, to see his love? You're with me? Mm-hmm. Like that now, judge that went to hell and the poor beggar that was underneath his table and he wouldn't give him any scraps. They was holding him up in heaven and giving him drink. And the evil judge, he was saying, give me a, let send him down and give me a drink. Yeah. And they would. Yeah, you're describing a story Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. Yes. And, and the details of which the main point we want to make is that there was a common experience with see. Now, it said there was a chasm that was nobody could cross, okay? You weren't going to sneak into the paradise side, okay? But yet there's experience. Now, if, if you... But you see what this does... Now, I, if I'm challenging your faith, forgive me. I mean, no, well, I just, I have to, okay? Because I think it's so important that we get beyond our old paradigms of heaven and hell the old way. Because that kind of... The reason why hellfire and brimstone preaching didn't work is it scared people into faith but only for a while until they lived long enough and were tempted long enough to realize that the physical pleasure of of, uh, giving in to sin was stronger than the abstract thought of maybe this punishment of hell. And if God's that mean, I don't want to love him anyway. That's why hellfire and brimstone didn't work. Didn't work ultimately. It worked for a while. It it scared some, yeah, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, you know what? I think a better name for a better sermon would be, and it's a book, actually, called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Yeah. What happens to sinners in the hands of a loving God? So this idea of, of challenging ourselves, I really believe these people, let's come back to the church in Thessalonica. I, I told you I don't have enough time to go. If you really want to challenge yourselves, I can give you some reading materials on that whole heaven and hell being the same place thing. Okay, But not right now. But here is... Uh, This last thought, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a wrath coming, and it really doesn't matter what it looks like or how bad it is. And whether it happens now or whether it happens in the future, the point is we're with Jesus, and Jesus delivers us totally and completely. That's what that Greek word means. Total and complete deliverance. Okay? Jesus is our deliverer. That's the root thought here. So the fact that they could hope for it. You know, it's a true fact that the church of Jesus Christ, the faith of Christ, always grows in times of persecution and wanes in times of prosperity. I think that's why we're seeing more persecution because we have waned. 
we, the Church of Jesus Christ, in the 21st century America, in the last half of the 20th century, and whenever it started, I don't know. I don't know when the slide started, but the point is, is we've just gotten fat and lazy in our faith. And we, the truth is we don't love everybody the way we should. And we don't treat them the way we should when they come into our, into, into our church home. And in fact, they don't want to come into our church homes because we don't and have it. And we've gotten known for not doing that. So I'm telling you, it's a radical message. The gospel is a radical message. It turns the world upside down. And when, when the church rediscovers the radicalness of this message, it'll start growing again. But until the radical love of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness to all people, not just people who look like us, is preached and lived out, and people see that transformation, it's not going to grow. It's going to grow in places where it's happening. The church always grows. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades is actually what he said, not hell. But... Is it growing where we're at? Is it growing where you're at? Is it growing in your life? These are challenging things. In the Thessalonian letter, now we're going to move to chapter 2 next week. And chapter 2 is going to remind us about the ministry. We're going to actually look, Paul's going to talk about the ministry that he had among them. And he's going to have to remind them of it because people have been sowing seeds of doubt in their mind. That they haven't, that the Paul wasn't really faithful. The Paul, I mean, he hadn't come back. He left in a hurry. Those kind of things have been spread about the apostle, and he needs to straighten them out. So, for that, thank you for your time. We're back into the flow next week, Thursday morning, eleven o'clock. Bring a friend, tell a friend. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Father God, for this group that's gathered today. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Help us to help us to see deeply the church of, that Paul was talking about in, in the Thessalonian group, that community. And help us to be changed. Help us to grow and help us to be transformed into the church that you dream about, that you call us to be. And I ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ who delivers us, our deliverer who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry. And I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as he forms his spirit within you.